Uh, you probably have heard, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe something. Do you think that's a correct statement? Well, well think about this. Uh, let's say I, I need heart surgery and I go to a heart surgeon and the heart surgeon says, you know, I was taught in medical school that the heart is in the chest and uh, that's what all my fellow physicians and surgeons believe, but I actually believe your heart's located down around your knee and that's how I'm gonna operate on you. What do you do? I'll tell you what you do. You gather up that split tail gown around you and you run, right? Because just because you believe something doesn't mean it's true. And if you think about it, what you believe really matters. Now the opposite of this attitude of, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe, is the idea that you must believe exactly what I believe. You've gotta believe exactly what I believe. And if you don't believe what I believe, we can't be friends. So, I believe the four finest major universities in the United States are Duke, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, Clemson, and the University of Florida. Now before all of the, uh, the Gamecock people throw tomatoes, you might want to ask, Clay, why do you believe that? And here's why. Because I sent my three children and my money to Duke, Chapel Hill, and Clemson. I've got an investment. And my family has cheered for the University of Florida since before I was born. You know, really, does that belief mean we can't be friends? Now, I see a couple of Gamecock fans about ready to walk out, so maybe for you, but really, I mean, is that really the test of friendship? See, right now in America, evangelical Christians have a reputation that if you do not agree with me about everything, about finer points of doctrine, about how we should go as a nation and who we should vote for and how to raise your kids. If you don't agree with me, we can't have a relationship and you can't follow Jesus. That's our reputation. And this isn't anything new. In the time of the early Jesus movement, the church, there was a group of people called Judaizers and they believed first you had to be a Jew, then you could become a Christian which was a problem for Gentiles. Because for Gentiles, that meant, number one, you've got to give up pork. Think about it this way. You can't have any more barbecue if you want to follow Jesus. And by the way, guys, step over here behind the curtain. We have some surgery that you need to have. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, read your Bible. It's real interesting. And Paul wrote this letter to a group of churches in Galatia. And he said to them, no, you don't have to become a Jew before you become a Christian. Because not even the Jews were able to keep all of their laws. In fact, what's most important is Jesus Christ being crucified and resurrected. That's what counts. That's what you need to believe. So today we're starting this new series called, Do You Believe? And we're going to spend five weeks looking at the very first sermon ever preached about Jesus. It was on the day of Pentecost. Jesus' good friend, disciple, Peter, preached it. And in that sermon, he makes five statements that you must believe 
about following Jesus. And that's what we want to discover. And so we're going to start today with the first of those statements that help begin the Christian movement, the Jesus movement, the church. And it, we start in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. So if you have a Bible, you might want to turn to Acts 2, verse 22. Peter says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Look at where Peter starts. He does not start by saying to this crowd, this big crowd in the temple that day, Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. That's not his starting point. He starts with a statement they can all agree on. Jesus of Nazareth. And everybody goes, yeah, Jesus, Nazareth, Rabbi, got him. And then he goes on and he says, he was accredited to you. And this is a Greek word which was used to describe the paper that a ambassador, an ambassador brought before um, his new king that he was going to um, uh, speak to on behalf of his nation to say, look, I'm not just some guy who showed up. I actually am an accredited diplomat. I have a right to speak on behalf of my nation. Peter is saying Jesus has come. He has the right to speak to us on God's behalf. Why? Well, Peter finishes out the thought. He says, by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Peter says, look, we believe Jesus was accredited by God because he did miracles, wonders, and signs. The word miracles actually is the Greek word for power. He did powerful things. Jesus did things no other rabbi ever did. Most rabbis just taught. Jesus healed people. Jesus transformed people's lives. He did the miraculous. And then uh, Peter uses the word wonders, things that you can't explain. Nobody could explain what Jesus did. And then he uses the word signs. Every miracle is a sign that Jesus is up to something. That God is doing something. And you're supposed to pause when there is a miracle and say, what's going on? Just like Moses paused before the burning bush in the wilderness, back in the book of Exodus, so we pause and we say, hey, here's a miracle. What does this mean? Now, everyone in the crowd, according to Peter, had heard about this. They had heard about Jesus feeding the 5,000 feeding the 4,000. They probably had already heard about him calming the storm, walking on the water, about people who, that he had been blind or lame and he healed them, the evil spirits that had been driven out. They had probably even heard the rumor that he had been resurrected from the dead. They had heard about his miracles. And the fact that he did miracles was never in dispute. And the fact that his tomb was empty was never in dispute. What was in dispute was how he did it. Because you see, the religious leaders of Jesus' day said, well, he doesn't fit in our box of what a Messiah should be. Therefore, Jesus must do this by the power of Satan. Do you remember this? It's by the power of Beelzebub he does these miracles. But I want you to know, Satan never heals Satan is the author of death, decay, and destruction. He is not 
the author of healing and hope. In our day, there are people who struggle with the whole idea of miracles. Well, why is that? They doubt the miracles of Jesus. And this really rises from a branch of philosophy that starts to emerge in the 1600s, 1700s, and into the 1800s called rationalism. Rationalism basically taught that uh, if you cannot understand it, if you cannot explain it, it's not real. There was a, a, a philosopher named Spinoza, you may remember him from school. Spinoza, though he claimed to be a follower of Jesus, said that he could not believe the miracles of Jesus were real. He wrote that in the 1700s. But we know that that can't be true. That there are things that you cannot explain, but they are very real. How many of you love someone? Okay, if, if you're not raising your hand, that's a sermon for another day, okay. But, but we all, I think, love someone, right? And, and do you do irrational things for people you love? Of course you do. Of course you do. You do things that don't make sense. My grandson has all the toys he needs. His house is full of toys. So do you know what we do every time we see him? We buy him more toys. It doesn't make any sense. And why do we do that? Because we love him. And we don't care if it doesn't make sense. And it's his parents' job to find a place to put them all. <laughs> Just because it doesn't make sense doesn't mean it's real, not real. And so Peter says, look, you need to believe that God sent Jesus, and the proof is his miracles. In Jesus' time, people didn't have any problem believing in miracles. They planted a little seed, and the harvest came. They saw the rising of the sun as the miracle. That's why the Egyptians worshipped the sun god. They thought it was a miracle. The sun came up every day. They thought life and birth were miracles. They could see God doing things in national history, and they call them miracles. But Jesus did miracles. That was the proof he was sent by God. So what happened when he did a miracle? Well, I want you to turn back a few pages to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. We'll look at verses 1 through 7 and then skip down and look at verses 24 and 25. And if you grew up in church, you may have heard this story. Um, as he, that is Jesus, went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. So the story starts with a theological discussion, right? It's a theological discussion the rabbis would have. And they assume 
of course, that because the man is blind, he must be deaf too, because they're having it right in front of him. The disciples were sensitive guys. And they say, teacher, you know, who sinned? Was it this man when he was in utero and a baby? Was, did he sin? Or was it his, his parents? Did God punish his parents? Because they sinned and they, they had a blind child. You notice how quick we try to figure out why. And often we assign the wrong meaning. So Jesus corrects him and says, look, it's neither one of those. In this case, this man, this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. This man's blindness is going to be an opportunity for God to do something. Now let me pause and say, whatever has happened to you, whatever hurt has come into your life, Wherever you feel wounded or discounted, there is a work God wants to do in you. There is an opportunity for every hurt you have for God to do a miracle. Now, Jesus goes on and he says, we've got to work while it is day. In other words, we have a limited amount of time. And then he goes and he says, I'm the light of the world. And you hear the contrast, right? This man born blind has been in darkness his whole life. He's never seen a color. He's never seen a face. He has no idea what the temple looks like. He has no idea what his parents look like. And Jesus is saying, this man is going to receive some light. Now this is all happening on the Sabbath. And you may remember that Jesus had gotten in trouble before for healing on the Sabbath because according to the religious authorities, God can only work this way. He can only heal six days a week, but he can't heal on the Sabbath. You can't do that. And you also cannot need anything on the Sabbath. Now, need here is not N-E-E-D, but is K-N-E-A-D. And so there was actually a law. You cannot need bread. Not that you can't need bread, but you can't need bread. Anybody never needed bread? Okay. It's real funny. At the 830 service, there were people who said, yeah, I've needed bread. But the rest of you, let me explain. Bread does not come automatically in bags with little clips, okay? And, and here is what Jesus is doing. Not only could you not need bread, but you couldn't need clay. Now, again, we're not talking about needing clay, we're talking about kneading clay. So he spits and he kneads up some mud and he puts it on the man's eyes. Now here's the real interesting part. Jesus could have just spoken a word and that man would have been healed, right? But he didn't. Instead this time, for reasons known to Jesus, he makes this man a mud pack and says, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. That requires faith. When God works a miracle, your faith is involved. And so Jesus tells him to go to Siloam. And just think about this for the blind man. What can he do? Does he just go, okay, how do I get there? 
And he has to turn to somebody and say, point me in the direction of Siloam. He has to make his way, probably with a stick, through the streets of Jerusalem, stopping ever so often to say, am I still headed for the pool of Siloam? No, you took a wrong turn. You've got to go this way. And so it must have taken him some time to get to the pool of Siloam, to get through all the crowds. And when he finally gets there, he goes into the pool and he washes that mud off of his eyes. And what happens? He came home seeing. For the first time, he sees faces and colors and the temple. For the first time, he's able to see this amazing world that God has made. Jesus is the light of the world and has brought light to him. And don't you know, if you live in Jerusalem, and you pass this guy every day. He's probably a beggar. And so he's standing there, you know, with his eyes closed. He's born blind. Hey, hey, can you help me? Can you help me? Can you help me? And, and instead, you kind of see this guy, and he's looking at you, and he's going, how you doing? I mean, because frankly, if I had just been made to see, that's what I would do. And, and everybody goes, I'm doing good. And then you go, wait a minute, weren't you blind this morning? Here's one of the things to learn about miracles. Miracles invite curiosity. When you see God work a miracle, you need to stop and ask, well, what was that about? What is God doing? What's the message here? And all of a sudden, everybody in Jerusalem are, is asking, well, what will happen to this guy? And the religious authorities get involved in the debate, and they're going, wait a minute, wait a minute. You were blind this morning. It's the Sabbath. Somebody healed you. Somebody broke the law. And these guys going, look, I can see. That's the main thing. They go to his parents. They're trying to throw this blind guy out of the synagogue because, I mean, doesn't this sound like some churches you know? You have been healed on the Sabbath. Therefore, we're going to kick you out. What did I do? other than get healed. Okay, so, so they're, they're doing this. They're going to the parents. The parents are saying, he was this way. We don't know. He, he's a grown man. You deal with him. You ask him the questions. And now go down to verse 24. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. Let me pause. The assumption is he's been lying to them the whole time. If you go to somebody and say, give glory to God by telling the truth, the assumption is our previous conversations, you've been deceiving me. Now let's go on. We know this man is a sinner. And he replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Now two things stand out to me. First is, these religious authorities had already made up their mind about Jesus. Jesus does not fit in their box. And because Jesus does not fit in their box, he must be a sinner. Do you have a closed mind about Jesus? See, I, I know some of you who don't identify as Christians, you don't think of yourself as a Jesus follower. You have seen something on the Discovery Channel or you have had a freshman English professor tell you that the Bible is a myth and you can't trust it and you've heard something on the Discovery Channel about how the resurrection was a, ho a hoax. Do your own work. Don't have a closed mind about Jesus. Do your research. 
And you will find abundant historical evidence that Jesus is a real person. The stories in the scripture are true. And he was who he said he was. If it's intelligent to doubt, you will hear that sometimes. Can we also not say it's intelligent to doubt your doubts? Now here's the thing that may make you uncomfortable. Sometimes Jesus followers have a closed mind about Jesus. They have figured out, they think, everything of who Jesus is and everything that Jesus does and the way that he would behave. And if you are not careful, what you will do is you will craft an idol and you will call it Jesus, but your idol looks an awful lot like the reflection you see in your mirror. If you think you have Jesus all figured out, your Jesus is not big enough. Now, the second thing that really stands out to me is this man's testimony. You gotta love it. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. Here's what I know. I got up this morning, I couldn't see, now I see. You'll recognize that line from Amazing Grace. I once was blind, but now I see. You know, every miracle has a story. Every miracle has a story. And you need to pause and say, what's the story here? What does this mean? That's why God does miracles. So we look at the fact that Peter says you've got to believe this, and then we've got to ask why. What's the story? What does it mean? Now hang with me. We believe that there is a God who made everything, that creation is not a random accident. For, for creation and matter and life to exist as a matter of mathematical chance requires more faith than I have. It's the equivalent of believing that a 747 came to, into being with no plan or no design, and all the molecules assemble and it fell from the sky. And since we believe that God made the universe, and we believe that he created natural order, he alone has authority over that natural order and he can decide to interrupt it any time he wants. And so that's what God does when he does a miracle. You read stories in the Old Testament about how the sun stood still, and we go, how did that happen? And here's the answer, we don't know. But God being God could stop the sun and could keep gravity in place because he's God. Nothing is beyond his ability. And if Jesus then is able to do these kinds of miracles, Miracles where he demonstrates his authority over evil. Miracles where he demonstrates his authority over disease and sickness. And his ultimate miracle where he demonstrates his authority over death through his resurrection. Who then is Jesus? Do you see the case that Peter is painting? That either you must deny the miracles of Jesus or you must deny that he is God. Now there's more. To believe that Jesus did miracles in the past is also to acknowledge that he can do miracles right now.
Now, that's what his earliest followers believed. You read the book of Acts, and they had no thought that Jesus couldn't do a miracle anymore. In fact, don't you remember? Peter and John one day are going to the temple, and there's a lame man, and Peter says, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, get up and walk. And the man got up and walked. And they drove out evil spirits in Jesus' name. And Paul carried such a presence of Christ that his shadow falling on the sick would make them well. Paul was even bitten by a snake, and he survived. Miracles didn't end with Jesus. And we believe that our God is still able to do miracles. Now, today, I think all of us, everybody listening, watching at the campuses, watching online, in this room, all of us probably can hang on to one of three hooks. One of three hooks. One of these is for you. I'm not sure which one, but you can, you can figure this out. And the first hook is, hook is that you can say, I know what he has done for me. I know the miracles God has done in my life. I know that there were times I should have died, and I didn't, because God protected me. I know that there was a time when I was sick, and the doctors said, we don't know what to do, and then you got better. And, and, and they said, well, we're really glad we turned it around. And yeah, probably the medicine helped, but it was really a miracle, right? And, and maybe that time that you were really struggling financially, and, and, and then the check showed up in the mail. Or maybe that time when you thought your marriage was really going to be over, but all of a sudden things seemed to shift in your heart and in your spouse's heart, and you survived and you came through and you go, my gosh, thank God we made it. Don't you think those are miracles? And so don't you think if you know what God has done for you, you should say today, thank you. Thank you, God. Thank you for, for giving this miracle to me. Thank you for the miracle of people loving me. Thank you for the miracle of my children and my grandchildren. Thank you for the miracle of every day of life. Thank you. The best indicator of what God is going to do is what he's already done. So what God has done is the best indicator of what God will do. Now, here's a second hook to hang on to. Maybe this better fits you. You're going through a tough time right now, and right now, you need to hang on to this. I want to see what God is doing. I want to see what God is doing. You know, we go through these life situations, we feel overwhelmed. We go through these life situations, and it just feels like we're getting flooded. And we need to ask God to open our eyes. Maybe, maybe you're just going through a time of skepticism, and I understand that. But don't just trust your doubts. Ask God to show you where he's at work. Often when people I love are sick, I will pray for God to heal them, but I'll also pray for God to send them signs of encouragement. God, help them to see where you're at work. You know, I, I think even as a country, it's good for us maybe at this critical time to go back and to know some history and to say, 
You know, God brought us through tough times before. I think God can do it again. And so, every time God forgives me, you know, that really is a miracle. And every time God gives me strength to go through, that really is a miracle. And so, pray a prayer like this. Open my eyes, God. Let me see where you're at. One last hook to hang on to. I want God to do a miracle in me. That's where some of you are today. You would say, I, I really want God to do a miracle in me. This is really important. Most of the time when we pray, we pray for a miracle. God, I want you to do this miracle for me. I want you to heal this person for me. But don't you remember what Jesus said? about the blind man, he said, this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, Jesus could have chosen a different Greek word there, but he chose the Greek word which means in. It is saying, God, I want to see what you can do with a messed up person like me. Because sometimes the miracle you get is not the miracle you ask for. I've had people that I love who've had cancer and I prayed for them to be healed. And they weren't. But the miracle God did was he gave me strength. The miracle God did was he opened up some opportunities for people who were in that person's circle. The miracle that God did was giving wisdom They were still miracles. Don't you remember, don't you remember what Paul prayed when he, he talked to us about this in 2 Corinthians when he said, you know, I had this thorn in my flesh and everybody wonders what the thorn is. We don't know. We just know if you've got a thorn in the flesh, it hurts. And Paul said, please take it away. And God said, no. My grace is sufficient for you. So what would be the greater miracle the removal of the thorn or the sufficiency of God's grace. Ask God to do a miracle in you. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, the greatest miracle God will do for you is forgive your sins, invite you to follow Jesus, and give you eternal life. That's the greatest miracle of all. Those of us who follow Jesus, let us proclaim boldly that we believe in the miracles that Jesus did, and he still does. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you're the God of miracles. I thank you for the miracles you have done in my life, in the life of this church, in our community, in our nation. And Father, I know that there are people right now who are overwhelmed. Help them see your hand at work. Help them see the miracles you're doing. And God, I think there's a lot of us who really, we need a miracle. Yes, God, I, there are people we want a miracle for, but the real miracle needs to happen in us. Break the power of our addictions. Break the power of our sin habits. Break our pride and our self-righteousness. 
And Father, most of all, we pray for the miracle of forgiveness, for our sins to be forgiven. Then I pray for every person that needs your salvation today, that they would open their lives to Jesus and say yes. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.